Whether it's a river runs through it or the oxbow incident, the last best place or legends of the fall, why is it that so many of the books that have defined the American West come from the same place? This is Breakfast in Montana. I'm Russell Rowland. And I'm Aaron Parrott. And we're going to spend the next half hour talking about two books from Montana, one from the past and one from the present, in an effort to understand what it is about this magical state that inspires so much incredible writing and so many memorable books. So pour yourself a good strong cup of coffee and spread some huckleberry jam on your toast. And welcome to Breakfast in Montana. about two poetry collections, uh, one called Blackbird Blue Horse by Natalie Petersey. And the other one is called Notes for a Novel, the Selected Poems of Frida Flegelman. Yeah, and I'm, I'm looking forward to this, and it's funny because I've kind of been dreading um, talking about poetry because I don't really feel like I know very much about it, and I'm sort of inept at talking about it, but these two collections really um, impressed me. Also, I think they're easier to talk about because they both have a pretty solid narrative structure. Yeah, I like that. You know, I, something I was thinking about when I read this book was just how when you read poetry, it's so different from reading anything else. And I have dozens of books stacked up by the bed, but I would never read poetry lying down it's like I always <laughs> you have to stand up it's to do like it? reading a no like you know you, it's like reading a textbook or something yeah. you just read it so much more slowly and carefully I always feel like I'm sitting in a chair and the light has to be right and yeah I you just wouldn't focus. like you have to want to pick up a poetry book and read it um I don't know if that's if it's like that for you guys but it is yeah and we don't we haven't I don't think we had poets on our podcast. No, this is the first time. So well, I'm thanks. Curious, <laughs> I'm just curious about how poetry is so different from... You know, I think a lot of people tell me that, and a lot of people are really intimidated by it, and I totally get it, because I'm still intimidated by it. There's oh, there's always this moment where I'm like, am I not going to understand this? Like, am I not yeah. smart enough to get these, right. all of the references, and, and, yeah. and to see what the writer's trying to do? But for me, you know, the mark of a good lyric poem, you know is that you feel something mm-hmm. like oh, yeah. you might not know what it is <laughs> or why or why yeah but there's something hopefully rattles around inside a little exactly. bit exactly no and sometimes it's just you know lines like the one you read fire so candid and without regret yeah or the stars look as if they've been put into jars and shaken they hang like bullied children mm. i love that one i mean too, those yeah. just stay with you yeah, I went to Mexico as part of the U.S. Poets in Mexico in January, and I had this teacher, um, Hua Huen, and she really talks about disassembling language and reassembling it in a way that changes the meaning of the way we understand the words in the sentence and the sentence structure, and sort of like redefining the world by by mixing language. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think sometimes that can be really powerful, and sometimes it can be really confusing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But I, I guess also poetry, and maybe this is why people use poetry for epigraphs to essays and stuff so often, is the way you can condense, like on page 17, you, for me at least, you completely summarize war in this one line. They inch closer like the sun, 
on someone else's barren landscape. To me, that just summarizes everything I think about Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm. Um, so, it's well, a combination of amazing images, but also there's a there's some forward movement throughout the whole thing. That's yeah. It's that, really, so it's not just imagery. I mean, imagery is amazing, but it's it's not okay. It's not enough in and of itself. It has to have some. Yeah, it summarizes something. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, here's another one. Here is my money. I say, and hand him your sandstorm. Mm. Yeah, I mean that's a whole the jar, novel. The jar of sand. It's a whole novel right there. Powerful. Yeah, it really, it really is. I always think poetry is way harder than any other form of writing because you do have to pack so much into so little. Well, I can't do anything else. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. You're like I have a print from Aaron in my office that said poets are born, not paid. <laughs> That's a famous quote from Wilson Misener. I was curious, I wondered how much of that was um I mean it doesn't seem like it was probably intention intentional on Frida's part because you know, she was just writing poetry forever and uh, Rick Newby ended up putting these together, but um, he does mention in his intro that she did conceive of it as a novel. That's true. Yeah, right. That she um, and that's one of the things that I thought was really fascinating about her approach. And he talks—I forget the critic that he mentioned—but that um, she thought of it as a novel that was not a novel. Mm. It, and that made me think of a recent. Um, book talk I went to by a Swarthmore professor, Rachel Burma. She was talking about Tommy Orange's new Oh, they're there. They're there. And, you know, in the course of talking about that, she she said that, you know, in the early 20th century, people thought of the novel as a sort of exhausted form. Like, really, after James Joyce Ulysses, I mean, what more Mm -hmm. can we do with the novel? And so then I started thinking about, you know, both these books, where they integrate poetry into the narrative you know, push, it seems like that's the future. And then I thought of, uh, I think, Vikram Seth's, you know, he wrote a... Oh, yeah. I can't His remember the name of that book. Long but. narrative poem, Golden Gate. Yeah, exactly. Or, yeah. yeah. I also thought of um, one of my favorite novels that I discovered when I was just learning to write was called Mrs. Bridge by Evan Cannell. And it, it was a novel that was made up of really short chapters, and they were all... Um, sort of just snapshots of this family life in Kansas City. Um, There wasn't really a story. It was just these incredibly telling moments in in this family's life, and it it all fit together really well into a story. But Why was this the same Evan Cannell who wrote Son of the Morning Star? It is, yeah. Oh, he's he's awesome. Guy, yeah. I've always liked his writing. So, yeah, that's the thing that stood out the most for me with both these books is that they they are long collections of well one long and one short collection of poetry but they had a a backbone or a, mm-hmm. a skeletal structure of the narrative you know they told a story yeah that even a lot of poetry books that are you know cycles don't really do that right so yeah uh so frida's story was basically that she was a a woman who grew up in Helena. She was born there in 1890, I think, wasn't it? Yeah, that sounds right. And 
She was incredibly intelligent and cultured. I mean, she spent a lot of time in Paris and almost finished her doctorate except for the dissertation and um what else? She was she was Well, a, yeah, she you know, she studied under Charles Beard and Franz Boas. Um petitioned to get into Charles Beard's class because at the time, you know, they didn't allow women into the mm. upper class seminars and uh, you know, he was one of the great historians, so she wrote a letter and they let her in. I think that's she was very uh feminist and just a powerful personality really famous right. around Helena and you know I was really pleased to see in a book that came out a couple of years ago called Bold Women in Montana History um, Beth Judy wrote this book and I reviewed it for the uh, Montana Magazine of Western History and the first thing I did when I got the book was uh, open it up to see if there was a chapter on um, on Frida Frida yeah and uh. both uh, her and her sister so it was great and it was a great overview of the two of them and how cool. important they were yeah and she was also a an expert in linguistics. She wrote a paper about linguistics that um, wasn't really considered that important at the time, but later people realized it was they. There was a medium that be, became popular later called sociolinguistics. Right. So she they were like, oh, this was way ahead of its time, basically. Yeah, because she was in sociology, and then she wrote her dissertation or whatever, her master's thesis. But it was mainly a linguistic approach, and the professors criticized it and said, you know, you should be in linguistics. But really, yeah. it was kind of a f groundbreaking work in that new domain that now you can get a major in sociolinguistics. Mm -hmm. So you got to wonder what, what the deal was with her as far as, you know, she, she has this amazing... Uh, catalog of poems that there were apparently there were 1200 that they had to choose from and but was never published as a poet right while she was alive very little she published a handful of poems in in literary magazines and she did oh, do okay. one chapbook that came oh, out that's of Berkeley. Right, yeah but my sense from all the introductory material was that she just was not ambitious about publishing her mm. poetry and it was more like this kind of ongoing work in progress that I think she was just so busy with other stuff that she thought of this as kind of her creative outlet. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. She had a lot going on. You know, here here's this woman who grew up and lived most of her life in Montana, but there's almost no hint of uh, nature poetry in this at all. <laughs> no, that's it's all great. Urban. That's... It's all about relationships. Um, she writes a lot about her loneliness. Um, and the, the fact she was never married, but um, it's clear from so many of these poems that she wasn't uh, lacking in company. No, and... Lots of relationships. Yeah, for sure, and I'm so glad you mentioned the, the urban aspect of this, because I think people forget that, you know, not all literature from Montana is about saving the ranch or fly fishing. Right. You know, a lot of it is stuff that takes place in Butte or Helena and not that they're huge cities but they do have you know a cosmopolitan feel to them mm -hmm. and I, I think we should read maybe a, a couple of these absolutely yeah I've got these. some marked here I love um, there's she wrote really eloquently about being uh, being lonely this was one yeah. of my favorite two like just two line passages 
I am lonely as a feather freed from a sickbed pillow. Wow. That's so good. It really is. Yeah. One of my favorites was toward the end of the book. Um, and it, it comes under, I think, a longer set of poems called Paradox One. Mm. It's page 215. It's, uh, she starts out to a professor of philosophy, which I thought was interesting. But then there's a short poem in there called Anachronism. Mm. And it's the deserted vagina protesting, struggling to calm itself in the search for companion, but only tormented with rolling echoes of creation. Wow. <laughs> and then and then on the next page, you know, along with your loneliness theme, it's unrequited. Mm. She says, I am the paradox that must be solved if there is any decency in nature. Oh, wow. moving finger of an evil fate that will write boldly to protest its chance. I am warning that each must be God. Wow. That's good. Yeah, here's another one. This one. And she, she addresses a lot of these poems to men who were obviously um, she was involved with. And sometimes they're very tender and... Um, you know, like, there's a definite echo of longing that it didn't work. This one is different. <laughs> so, <laughs> life has taught you nothing, but I have learned much. Or perhaps we have only heard two different endings to the same old story. You have the geological attitude of sediment that has no choice. And I, a honeybee, imagine I can choose. Ah, oh, that's awesome. Isn't that great? Yeah. You know, that's, the next one I marked is kind of similar, and it's a, it's a really counterintuitive meditation on a pretty common topic, but the title is Population. Mm. And it says, it is, not, is it not obscene that you who do not love can still have children? Oh, yeah. God did not too. create love, but only passion, leaving the lover to wander on and on alone. Yes. Yeah, I marked that one too. That one's so good. Okay, one more. Here's a parting. Being so, I'm almost glad to leave you, but oh, the streets are lonesome, and oh, the streets are noisy, oh, the streets are foolish with their noise, and oh, my room is quiet, and oh, my room is empty, and oh, my room is crazy with the quiet. She just it's was so eloquent about being alone but also she had this these moments of you know connection with other people that are just really powerful right and it's funny that you i almost picked that poem also and then i found another one she mm. was really into noise yes like i think she was very sensitive to sound around her and it probably interfered with her writing but on 134 there's this poem called noise the ballad of the incorrigible mr m <laughs> I marked that one too. Yeah, let's hear you it. You may wear an arrow collar, but you're a roughneck just the same if you slam the door at 3 or 4 a.m. or any other time. You may get your shirts and ties at Silka, Place Vendome, but you're the hairy ape if you slam the door at 3 or 4 a.m. or any other time. <laughs> you may get your ample plus fours from the Strand or Piccadilly, but you're a sans culotte just the same if you slam the door at 3 or 4 a.m. or any other time. Yeah. Awesome. 
Yeah, uh, so it's a really fun collection. Um, it and is. I, I, I do want to mention that this was, um, you know, this poetry would not even be out there except for the work of Rick Newby, mm-hmm. uh, who founded Drum Lemon Institute, and um, this is one of the books that they put out. Um, and it has a great set of essays by people who knew her, yep. including Arnie Molina, who started Second Story Cinema and then founded the Myrna Loy in Helena. He spent a lot of time interviewing her in her last years, right before she died, and wrote an ex- excellent essay in here. Mm-hmm. This book yeah, came it's, out t- 10 years ago in 2008. It's a lost treasure. I mean, she she was way ahead of her time. Um not just writing about the the urban aspect of Montana, but personal relationships. I mean, she just explores that whole uh, area in, in ways that I don't think... You know what, it, it reminded me a little bit, too, of Mary McLean's book. Right, yeah, exactly. Yeah, very kindred spirits and, uh, you know, kind of free love. You mm-hmm. know, 65 years before the 1960s. yeah. Hers isn't as graphic as Mary's, but it's it definitely <laughs> explores a lot of that same. The, the, and there's also a real religious dimension to. Uh, right. She meditates a lot on religious stuff and kind of has this pantheistic worldview. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then Natalie's book is a very different uh, type of narrative. It's an it's an elegy to a friend of hers that was killed in Afghanistan. Yeah. Tell us about Nicole Dial. <coughs> Nicole Dial was um, Dial. My, one of my best buddies from um, undergrad. We were roommates. Um, Where did you go to school? I went to uh, undergrad at the School for International Training, which is in Brattleboro, Vermont. Oh. And they have a program for people who want to do field work, which is what she ended up doing. And what were you there for? Poetry? Uh, you know, I, w- I got a degree in international studies first and a poetry degree second. Mm-hmm. Nicole and I stayed friends. We, we went on a bunch of adventures together. We traveled through Zimbabwe together. Um, we traveled through Europe together. And she came out with me to graduate school here at the University of Montana. And then we lived together in D.C. Um, for three years. And at the end of that time together, I chose to move back to Montana, and she took a job with the UN, which led to her job with the International Rescue Committee, which is who she was working for when she was killed. Mm. She was um, working on schools for girls and um, Mm. just in a convoy um, on the way back from that, those meetings, and um, they were ambushed by local Taliban militia on the side of the road. Wow. But um, two other aid workers died with her, and the driver, and some local folks. Yeah, these poems really resonated with me because I had a, one of my best friends died the same situation in Iraq. Really? Um, and he joined the army really late in life, like 35, as late as you can join. Wow. Um, and he joined right after 9-11 and, you know, went to Iraq for a year and got shot in a attack on a convoy he was on and... Yeah, Nicole had only been in the country for three months. It was just like almost immediate. Yeah, it is a... You know, it's called an elegy. Black Bird's Blue Horse, an elegy. Yep. And this won the... uh, This won several prizes, including the Goldline Press Poetry Award. 
and uh, yeah. Montana Artists Innovation Award in 2013. Mm-hmm. It's a brilliant set of meditations on the death of a friend. So I was one of the things I wanted to ask right off the bat was um, the title. You know, my friend Amy Ratto Parks, who's a poet, helped me with that title. Um, I was just trying to think of, of anything that sort of characterized what was happening in the book. And she said to just kind of stick to some of the key images, symbolic images. So we, she suggested Blackbird's Blue Horse. And she's like, why don't you just call it what it is, which is an elegy. And I thought, well, that all makes sense. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, it's funny you'd mention the images because I noticed uh, there's a lot of blue horses in there, but I didn't notice any blackbirds. Was that sort of a, is that sort of an implied thing? Maybe. There is, there's one poem where there's some, um, some birds flying um, sort, okay. of, sort of the back end of the poem. I wondered if my my theory on that was that the blackbirds represented the invisible forces that were right. behind all this. Yeah, true. Okay. I have a question about the okay. title since okay. it comes up throughout the book. The, the uh, colon in there. Yeah. This is the most unusual use of ah, colons yes. that I've Lots ever seen in poetry. <laughs> and even at the beginning of lines, like... Yeah, so my best explanation about... Well, first of all, I'm a poet, so I like experimenting with language and poetry. But um, I got smuggled into a workshop of Jory Graham's after I graduated, and she's, you know, a major contemporary American poet. And it was it was an interesting experience, but one of the things that she talked about at length was how in poetry, um, punctuation doesn't function necessarily grammatically, but it's more of an, an emotional expression. Mm. And I thought about that for years. Mm-hmm. And I was like, how is punctuation emotional mm. in poetry? Or how does it express something differently? And I started experimenting with the colon. And I feel like sometimes it it's like a gate or a spotlight sometimes, mm. um, rather than the actual function of a colon. Or it can connect two lines together um, that that wouldn't connect grammatically, but might connect emotionally or in terms of the images that are, that are reflecting on each other. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's the colon. Nice. Well, I, I wanted to point out one of the, the uh, quotes that you put in the beginning. Because even the tiny banquet of a spider is enough to upset the entire equilibrium of the sky, Federico Garcia Lorca, I, I thought that um, quote summed up how the impact of this book on me too um it's such a short i mean it's only 26 pages but it's really rich and i mean it felt longer it felt heavy (laughs) you know there's a lot packed into these exactly 30 little pages yeah um and it's a narrative it's not just a bunch of poems. It's all a story. And I, I wanted to know how you decided to approach that because it sort of explores both your experience and hers. Yeah. Well, the poet Henrietta Goodman said to me once, elegies are always about the people who are writing the book and never about the people who died. Uh-huh. And I'm like, that's true because Nicole hated poetry and she would have been very annoyed um, by a lot of it. But um, for me... I had a bunch of material from my time living in D.C. and sort of thinking about what that place was like. And then um, Nicole was killed and I was trying to write about it. And I 
And I ended up writing, I think, mostly about the experience of grief and when you kind of lose your equilibrium and, and where you, you kind of don't know where you are in terms of your life or what's day and night. And um, I thought about all the time we spent wandering through D.C. and I kind of followed that idea of like the experience of grief, uh, like unfolding through the city that we knew so well together. And I got a lot of help um, from friends and other poets to help me sequence the poems in a way that had an arc because Mm -hmm. I was really struggling with that. and I had some great edits from people, um, like the third poem, um, the speaker gets into a cab, and I had a different verb there, and a friend of mine suggested the word fairy, fairy across the city, and of course that changes the context of, mm. you know, the journey between this world and the next world, so um, it was deliberate, and it took a long time to assemble, um, but, I, but I think that if you got it, it's there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I got it. Would you read one of these? Uh, Sure. Did you hear again a man lit himself on fire in front of the White House? Watch as the fire spiders from his clothes to his skin. It is so clever, fire, so candid and without regret. So like our pink likenesses, a lobster, elephant, Pepto-Bismol, duck-billed, reflection back at me where nothing fits, bodies do not settle. And if you notice, they do not have hands the way we do when we speak of them. Hmm. Yeah, I love that poem. Um, if I could switch topics sure. a little bit and have you talk about open country. Oh, okay. Tell us about that. Like, How did you come up with that and what is it? So I, I run a small press called Open Country Press. It's very glamorous work. Um, <laughs> Uh, Henrietta Goodman and I, who's another Montana poet, ran a reading series in Missoula for two years called the Open Country Reading Series. So I got the idea when I moved from uh, Missoula to Helena to sort of work on a press um, since the reading series kind of went to sleep and sort of get get their work out there. So we have an anthology called Bright Bones Contemporary Montana oh, Writing. yeah, I've seen that. that did, didn't Ann do the cover for that? She or? did. I was... I was I have that on my list. <laughs> There's a it's bunch a of great cover. Thanks. Well, yeah. Nan Parrot did it. I got. I have to say about that cover because now you have the Dee Morenis book. Um, before I saw the cover of Bright Bones, and I was thinking about the cover for Dee Morenis, um, I walked into bookstores and I was like, "What color do you not see when you walk into a bookstore?" And it's bright blue. Mm. That's true. It kind of. That's pops. why they both ended up with that. Yeah, huh. I love the the De Marinas cover. Oh, oh yeah, awesome. it's so it's cool! Yeah, the big milk bottle. It's yeah, very cool. Um, and so there's a bunch of writers you might not have heard of in that anthology that are fabulous. And then um, we have a chapbook contest, and there's a Montana poet named Adrian Keene who's putting his book out in the next couple months. It's called Nevada Gang. Hmm. It's just gorgeous. Really gorgeous poetry, poetry and, yeah, and uh-huh. a gorgeous cover designed by Autumn Tonus, who I work with, and. You know, just slowly getting a kind of new, more experimental voices out there. And and you're focusing entirely on poetry? or You know, the the anthology has essays and oh, stories it? in it, too. It's okay. kind of a mis- mishmash. Mm-hmm. And so do you have a grant to do all this, or how do you fund it? You know, um, we, are, we were originally funded through a Kickstarter, and then when we started the press, we have our chat book contest um, has an entry fee. Oh, okay. 
And so did the Brightbone submissions. So we use Submittable, a ah. Montana company. Yes, that is. And um, we've had great luck. Last year we had, you know, over 100 submissions to the uh, chapbook contest. Michael Earl Craig was our judge. Oh, cool. He's awesome. We, we love him. Yeah, we got to get him on this podcast. So that sort of helps helps with the money. Mm-hmm. What kind of stuff do you read? Like, who, who would you... What, do you read poetry? I'm a mom, so I don't read. <laughs> <laughs> One of the great things about editing this anthology and working on the chapbook series is that I do get to read. It forces for you to like, read. Like, I sit yeah. down and read that stuff. When did you start writing poetry? Were you pretty young? Yeah, you know, I always journaled. I think by the time I was 13, I was, like, filling up notebooks. And then that just sort of grew. Um, you know, I was really interested in it in high school. Um, and I did one year of college at um, Southwest Texas State, which is now called Texas State University. And, of course, I'd read On the Road, and I, I knew who Allen Ginsberg's, but <clears throat> he came to my campus for a reading. Mm. And I had a, um, a work-study job. And one of the girls I work with said, just run down there. You should see it, you know? So I ran across campus and I busted into this jam-packed auditorium. And there was, you know, Allen Ginsberg on stage with an accordion and like a young lover or something. (laughs) And I just stood in the corner and um, he read Sunflower Sutra and was playing with his accordion along with it. And it was just one of those experiences where like time stopped and it just meant the world to me. And I want, at that point, I had started sort of pursuing wanting to study poetry, but um, one of the reasons I did study abroad in Nicaragua is because it's, poets had heavily influenced the revolution there, and I was really interested mm. in Ernesto Cardinal, Cardinal and all those guys. Um, so after living and studying in Nicaragua, I sort of made up my mind that I wanted to, to try to be a writer for reals. Yeah. For reals. <laughs> So that year I applied to the MFA program here. So what did you get out of it, the whole experience of writing this? Um, I think now, this this is 10 years later now, I guess, or less than 10 years, but I think it helped me, you know, develop some confidence as a writer. Mm. It's always exciting to win something. Well, yeah. <laughs> and you also won the Artist Innovation Award I, for this. Too. I did, yeah. So it, it, it helped. Um, I wrote another sequence after that. Um, uh, about the birth of my daughter, and um, I'm working on another book now. But there's titles, so I'm trying to I'm mm. trying to no, work on a longer no. piece of titles. But um, you know, it was just really moving to have it kind of float out into the world and hear what people thought about it. Mm. And so several, you said it took a long time for this. Um, do you mean to write it or for it to come out? No, just the whole process. Like, did you? Start with the writing. Did you? Did it kind of all come in one burst, or no? It long? took like three years, oh, probably, yeah. of like patchwork revision, getting friends to read it, trying oh, okay. again. When was she killed? Two thousand and eight. So oh, her okay. ten year anniversary just passed. So it's interesting that a lot of the best poets in Montana. I mean, throughout history, really, have been women. There's um, Sandra Alcoster. Um, Madeline DeFries, yeah. Melissa Kwasney. Oh, I love her stuff, yeah. Yeah, I, I really think she's going to go down in history as one of the great poets of all time. Yes, Tammy Holland, who right. was the poet laureate for a while. Um, yeah, there's Kara Chamberlain. I don't know if you've read any of her stuff, but 
she's a poet out of Billings that does these really interesting collections. She did one that was uh, entirely focused on science. Um, each one was directed toward was uh, about some aspect of science. And, uh, oh, that sounds right up my alley. Yeah, you would like it. I, I, I uh, one I of my favorite of things I I use when I teach poetry, you know, and I start out with haiku, is somebody did a series of haiku for the entire periodic table of elements. Oh, wow. <laughs> so each element has its own haiku, and they're awesome. Yeah. Well, I'm. it's curious. I mean, I wonder why that is. Maybe, you know, in the days when when women really didn't write or were prevented from writing, somehow poetry is... Uh, you know, I think of Emily Dickinson, um, who, kind of like Frida Fligelman, um, wrote a lot of poetry that was never published in her lifetime. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether it's an out creative outlet thing or just a mode of expression that's... I don't know. People tend not to dismiss women who write poetry like they yeah, right. dismiss women who try to write essays or philosophy. Yeah. Good question. If to say we liked both of these books a lot, really. Oh, yeah, these were really, really great. Natalie Petersee's Blackbird Blue Horse. And Notes for a Novel, The Selected Poems of Frida Fligelman. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, for the next episode, I believe we're going to be talking about Melissa Stevenson's Driven. Her new memoir that is just out. Yes. And the story of Mary McLean. Also known as... Yeah, she originally wanted to call it I Await the Devil's Coming. <laughs> she says that a lot through the book, too. All right. Thank you again for joining us. We'll see you next time. Breakfast in Montana is produced and edited by Russell Rowland. The music is written and performed by Aaron Parrott. Thanks again. With whiskey.